the book that i'm going to talk about today it's called among the believers written by vs naipaul the nobel prize winning author it was published in 1981 and the idea behind book was that the author travels through certain islamic countries and observes the religious fundamentalism or extremism that was growing there it must be noticed that uh, these travels happened right after the iranian revolution after which the shah of iran was thrown out of the government and khomeini started ruling it and being a shia muslim majority country since then it has been a theocracy in some ways and he also travels through other muslim countries in asia like pakistan malaysia indonesia and one of the purposes for this for that is uh, he sees certain religious tendencies uh in these people not so much in the arab people who were the initial muslims but people who converted to this religion and uh, a lot of them inspired to have a theocratic or a religious state it's also worth noting that uh, right at the beginning uh, naipaul confesses that he doesn't have any idea about islam or muslim societies just a few basic things here and there the name of the prophet or the quran just the very basics but he goes there with open mind and write down his observations and tells a story and as i said the driving force is to understand the religious fundamentalism in islam and what really is driving that in muslim societies it must be noted that it was written 40 years ago and the challenge is still the same the islamic world is still fighting the same battle where certain people are obsessed with uh establishing a religious state and there are certain people who are opposing them and this has been that kind of experience for the last many decades now the portion that i'm going to read for you today this comes from naipaul's travels in pakistan and in many ways pakistan is quite an interesting country or at least it has become quite an interesting country because when it was created in 1947 since then it has pretty much been along the lines of an ideological state that is a home for muslims and since it was created by the muslims of the indian subcontinent who were more or less uh, converted from their original re- religions to islam it's a very interesting tendency to 
observe here, which Naipaul observes and writes about. And especially this tendency among the fundamentalists and the extremist people who are just obsessed with Islamic history and uh, how they kind of glorify it even to the extent where they are glorifying the invaders, the Muslim invaders who came to their land and eventually conquered and converted people to Islam and a lot of times forcibly. So that kind of tendency is very interesting to note and Naipaul writes about it in the chapter called Killing History where he describes how people are obsessed with the history of Muhammad bin Qasim who was perhaps the first invader in a series of Islamic conquests that happened in India during the Middle Ages and how he has become a hero in many fundamentalist groups in Pakistan. So, without giving my own opinions on that, let me just start reading the chapter and you'll get the idea. So here we go. In the imagination, the Arabs of the 7th century, inflamed by the message of the Prophet, pour out of Arabia and spread east and west, overthrowing decade kingdoms and imposing the new faith. They move fast. In the west, they invade Spain in 710. In the east, in the same year, they move beyond Persia to invade the great Hindu-Buddhist kingdom of Sindh. The symmetry of the expansion reinforces the idea of elemental energy, a lava flow of the faith. But the Arab account of the conquest of Sindh contained in the book called the Chachnama, which I read in Pakistan in a paperback reprint of the English translation first published in 1900 in Karachi, tells a less apocalyptic story. The Arabs had to fight hard. They turned their attention to Sindh at some time between 634 and 644 during the reign of the second caliph or successor to the prophet and in the next 60 or 70 years made 10 attempts at conquest. The aim of the final invasion, as the Chachnama makes clear, was not the propagation of the faith. The invasion was a commercial imperial enterprise. It had to show a profit. Revenge was a subsidiary motive. But what was required from the conquered people was not conversion to Islam, but tributes and taxes, treasure, slaves and women. The invasion was superintended from Kufa by Hajjaj, the governor of Iraq, when in the middle of the campaign he received the head of the defeated king of Sindh together with 60,000 slaves and the royal one-fifth of the loot of Sindh, Hajjaj placed his forehead on the ground and offered prayers of thanksgiving by two genuflections to God and praised him, saying, Now have I got all the treasures 
with the open out parade as well as other wealth and the kingdom of the world he summoned the people of kufa to the famous mosque of that town and from that place he told them good news and good luck to the people of syria and arabia whom i congratulate on the conquest of hind and on the possession of immense wealth which the great and omnipotent god has kindly bestowed on them it was open to the conquered people to accept islam but the conquerors were arabs and the kingdom of the world was theirs there are resemblances with the spanish conquest of mexico and peru and they are not accidental the arab conquest of spain occurring at the same time as the conquest of sindh marked spain 800 years later in the new world the spanish conquistadors were like arabs in their faith fanaticism toughness poverty and greed The Chachnama is in many ways the conquest of New Spain by Bernal Diaz, the Spanish soldier who in his old age wrote of his campaigns in Mexico with Cortes in 1519 and after. The theme of both works is the same, the destruction by an imperialist power with a strong sense of mission and a wide knowledge of the world of a remote culture that knows only itself and doesn't begin to understand what it is fighting the world conquerors the establishers of long lived systems have a wider view men are bound together by a larger idea the people to be conquered see less no less the stratified or fragmented societies are ready to be taken over and interestingly both in mexico in 1519 and sindh in 710 people were weakened by prophecies of conquest there is this difference between the conquest of new spain and the chachnama bernal diaz the spaniard was writing of events he had taken part in the chachnama is arab or muslim genre writing a pleasant story of conquest and it was written 500 years after the conquest of sindh the author was persian his source was an arabic manuscript preserved by the family of the conqueror mohammed bin qasim the intervening 5 centuries have added no extra moral or historical sense to the persian narrative no new wonder or compassion no idea of what is cruel and what is not cruel such as even bernal diaz the spanish soldier possesses to the persian writing in 1216 the arab conquests the conquests of khurasan ajum iraq sham rum and hind are glorious they are the story of the spread of true civilization conquest is pleasant to read about because conquest is based on spiritual rectitude and temporal excellence of which learned philosophers and generous kings would be proud because all men attain advancement to perfection by acknowledging as true the belief of the people of arabia there is an irony in this praise of conquest not many years after those words were written the invading mongols were to arrive in persia and iraq and the arab civilization which the chachnama celebrated was to be shattered stupefied for centuries the chachnama begins with an account of the native dynasty of sindh that is to be overthrown by the arabs 
In this part of the narrative, dates are few and there are elements of the fairy tale. The dynasty was founded by Chach. Chach was a Brahmin ascetic who lived with his brother in a village temple. One day he went to the palace of the king and offered his services as scribe and secretary to the chamberlain. Chach was tall and handsome. He spoke well and wrote a beautiful hand. He became first a correspondence clerk, the chamberlain, when the chamberlain died, and then prime minister. It happens one day that the queen, normally secluded in the private apartments of the palace, sees the handsome Brahmin prime minister. She falls in love with him and makes a declaration to him. He is nervous. He tells the queen that there are four things men should never trust or take for granted. A king, fire, wind and water. But the queen pleads. She asks only to be allowed to look at Chach once a day. And in the end, she has her way. Chach, the Brahmin ascetic, becomes the queen's lover. And his power in the kingdom of Sindh is second only to that of the king. Some years pass. The king falls ill and then is near to death. The queen, who has no children, fears that she will now be displaced and degraded by the king's relations. Through Chach, she orders 50 sets of chains to be secretly brought to the palace. The king dies. The news is not given out. The physicians are detained. All the claimants to the throne are summoned in the king's name to the palace. As they arrive, they are fettered and imprisoned. Then the king's poor relations are summoned. They have grievances. Each poor relation has his particular enemy among the claimants. And now he is given the chance, as though on the king's order, to cut off the head of his enemy and take possession of his property. When all the claimants are killed, it is announced that the king has appointed Chach as his regent. Then it is announced that the king has died. Gifts are made to powerful nobles. The queen places the crown on Chach's head and the people acclaim Chach. The dead king's brother disapproves. He marches into Sindh, claims the throne for himself and challenges Chach to single combat. Chach says, I am a Brahmin. Brahmins do not fight on horseback. The dead king's brother dismounts. Chach jumps on a horse and cuts off his challenger's head. And that is that. Power is power. A king's first duty is to keep himself in power. There are no rules. A king, as Chach now is, has constantly to pacify his subjects high and low, barren or outcast. And in this pacification, any subjects and any means are permissible. Among the rules of conduct prescribed for kings, one is that an enemy should be reduced to submission by tricks and deceit. A king has to be on the move. His presence must be felt in every corner of his kingdom. People must never get the haughty notion in their heads that there is no one to exact revenue from them. Kings need revenue because the day may come when the enemy is too strong to be fought off and peace will have to be bargained for. Remember, it is for a day like this 
that kings collect treasures and bury them underground for by means of gold troops are collected and war is carried on in which they sacrifice their lives for the sake of their country and their good name in other ways also by means of gold an enemy can easily be made to retreat with the help of gold a man can settle all the affairs of this world satisfactorily repulse an enemy and satisfy his vengeance at the same time with its help he can make the necessary provision for his journey to the next world this is what chachnama says chach the queen soon disappears from his story he rules for 40 years it is chach who repulses the first arab attack a sea attack on the port of tebal on chach's death the kingdom passes to chach's brother and then to chach's son dahar dahar is told one day of a wonderful brahmin astrologer and since it is good for a king to consult wise brahmins dahar gets on his elephant and visits the astrologer for dahar himself the astrologer predicts nothing but good fortune but this is clouded by what the astrologer says about dahar's sister the man dahar's sister marries the astrologer says will rule the kingdom dahar is perplexed his prime minister has a solution since a king's first duty is to his throne dahar should go through a form of marriage with his sister there are five things the prime minister says which have a sorry look when they lose their proper place a king who has lost his kingdom a minister who loses his proper place or position in the ministry a holy man who has lost his disciples hair and teeth when they drop out a woman's breasts when they droop with age dahar is shocked by his prime minister's advice the prime minister goes home takes a sheep scatters earth and mustard seed in its wool and waters it after some days the mustard seeds sprouts the sheep turns green the sheep is then driven about the town and people rush to see it but after 3 days the wonder abates the green sheep is taken for granted the prime minister says o king whatever happens whether good or evil the people's tongues wag about it for 3 days thereafter no one remembers whether it was good or evil so dahar goes through a marriage ceremony with his sister much is made of this incident though it has no important sequel it serves only in the persian arab narrative to stress that the kingdom of sindh is morally blighted and the cause of the dynasty of chach cannot prosper attention shifts now to the arabs the narrative alters becomes more historical begins to depend on the narrative chains of arab history and we are at once in a more organized more disciplined and less arbitrary world a world of law where men however anxious for power fame and wealth also serve a cause above themselves the soldier obeys the general the general the governor the governor the caliph and also the prophet islam and god after the failure of the first two expeditions against sindh the third caliph osman 
orders a detailed report on the affairs of Hind and Sindh, its rules of war, its strategy, the nature of its government, the structure of its society. The order goes to Abdullah and Abdullah passes it on to Hakim. And Abdullah is so impressed by what Hakim has to say that he sends Hakim directly to the caliph. Oh Hakim, the caliph says, have you seen Hindustan and learnt all about it? Yes, O commander of the faithful, give us a description of it. Its water is dark and dirty, its fruit is bitter and poisonous, its land is stony and its earth is salt. A small army will soon be annihilated there and a large one will soon die of hunger. And how are the people? Are they faithful or violators of the world? They are treacherous and deceitful. The caliph takes fright at this last piece of information and forbids the invasion of Sindh. But under the later caliphs, the idea comes up again and again. The seventh expedition is led by Sinan, whose distinction now, time is passing, is that he was born in the lifetime of the prophet and had been given his name by the prophet. There was a tradition that the Prophet had said to Sinan's father Salma, O Salma, I congratulate you on the birth of a son. But though the Prophet appears to him in a dream, Sinan is killed in Sindh. And two expeditions after that also end badly. Towards the end of the 7th century, Hajjaj becomes governor of Iraq, Sindh and Hind. Hajjaj was first supposed to deal with religious racial disaffection in Kufa and Iraq. Then he too sends an army to Sindh. King Dahar of Sindh has been encouraging Muslim rebels. Hajjad's army is defeated by King Dahar's son. The Arab commander is killed and Arabs are taken prisoner. The reigning caliph wants to hear no more of Sindh. The country is too far away, he writes Hajjaj. The people are too cunning, the expeditions are too expensive, and too many Muslims are being killed. But Hajjaj asks for another chance. He promises to pay, pay back to the royal treasury double the sum spent on a new invasion. The caliph agrees. He gives a written order for the invasion of Sindh. Hajjaj selects 6,000 experienced soldiers from Syria appoints his 17-year-old son-in-law Muhammad bin Qasim general and superintends every detail of the preparations. The army, with a full complement of pack camels and camelmen, is to go by land. The siege supplies, including naphtha arrows, coats of mail, battering rams and a special catapult that requires 500 men to operate it, are to go by sea. Ben Qasim is to do nothing without the authority of Hajjaj. A system of runners ensures that letters get from Sindh to Kufa in seven days. Hajjaj in his letters constantly mixes military instructions with religious exhortations. Dig a ditch around your camp, be awake for the greater part of the night and let those of you who can read the Quran be busy reading it. The army must always camp in open ground. At times of battle, the army must always be divided into five sections. Center, vanguard, rear guard, left wing, right wing, with cavalry on the wings. Ben Qasim arrives at the port of Debal. 
the supplies sent by sea arrive the same day. But Hajjaj doesn't give the order to engage in battle until the eighth day. At the end of that day, a Brahmin comes out of the town. He tells the Arabs that the town is guarded by a talisman. The four long flags of green silk that hang down from the arms of the flagstaff on the dome of the great temple of Debal. While the flagstaff stands, the Brahmin says, the people of Debal will fight. It is the first of the betrayals that will assist the Arab conquest. But they are not betrayals really. They are no more than the actions of people who understand only that power is power and believe they are only changing rulers. They cannot conceive that a new way is about to come. Ben Qasim asks his catapult engineer, Jobat, whether he can knock down the flagstaff. Jobat says, if we remove two ramrods from the big catapult with three stones, I will blow off the flag and pole and break the dome of the temple. 10,000 dirhams for you if you do that, Ben Qasim says. But if you fail, and if you spoil the caliph's catapult, Jobat says, let the hands of Jobat be cut off. That is the compact. And on the next day, while the Arabs attack the town from four directions, the big catapult is placed where Jobat says, the 500 catapult men pull on the ropes and the stones are shot off from the flagstaff and the dome are shattered. And it is then, as the Brahmin said, the defenders of Debal open their gates and ask for mercy. But Hajjaj has issued precise instructions for the first victory. The residents of Debal are not to be spared. The Arab army has to slaughter for three days. It is what Bin Qasim tells the people of Debal. After the slaughter, the booty, the treasure and the slaves. One-fifth, the royal fifth, is set aside for the caliph in obedience to the religious law. Hajjaj's treasurer takes charge of that. The rest of the booty of Debal is distributed fairly according to Arab practice, a cavalryman getting twice as much as a camelman or foot soldier. The war is far from over. Sindh is big and has many fortified towns. But Debal sets the pattern, the siege, the betrayal by nobles or Brahmins or Buddhist priests who do not believe in killing, the entry by the Arabs, and the killing, the checking and distribution of the booty after the Caliph's fifth has been deducted. It is in the district of Sivistwan that the people get to understand the nature of the invader. A spy from the Chanas tribe sees the Arabs at prayer in their camp, the whole army standing up, a picture of equality, unity and union, the general leading his men in prayer but at one with them. The effect on the Chanas people is immediate. They go in a body to the Arabs who are now having supper and surrender. Note that Pakistanis today who have seen the Chinese soldiers building the China-Pakistan road in the far north are similarly awed by the discipline and unity of the Chinese. After the massacre at Debal, the killing is more selective. Traders, artisans and peasants are allowed to continue in their occupations and practice their religion. Brahmins continue to be administrators. 
All that is required of unbelievers is the tribute and the special tax. But Hajjaj insists on the killing of the warrior class and the enslaving of their dependents. When he gets Dahar's head and Bin Qasim's report of victory, he writes sternly, My dear cousin, I have received your life-augmenting letter. On its receipt, my gladness and joy knew no bounds. But the way of granting pardon prescribed by the law is different from the one adopted by you. The great God says in the Quran, O true believers, when you encounter the unbelievers, strike off their heads. The above command of the great God is a great command and must be respected and followed. Concluded with compliments written by Nafia in the year 93. And he returns to the point even later in the campaign. He says, My distinct orders are that all those who are fighting men should be assassinated and their sons and daughters imprisoned and retained as hostages. So, at the big town of Brahminabad after his entry, Bin Qasim next came to the place of execution and in his presence ordered all the men belonging to the military classes to be beheaded with swords. It is said that about 6,000 fighting men were massacred on this occasion, some say 16,000. And King Dahar never understood the nature of the war, never understood that more than his throne was at stake. There was for him in war an element of chivalry and deadly play. He could have prevented Bin Qasim crossing the Indus River. It was what he was advised to do. But he thought that undignified. He could have retreated even then and left the desert to deal with the invaders. It was again what he was advised to do. But again he thought that undignified. He died in a battle. Naphtairos set the litter on his elephant alight. There were two women servants in the litter, one preparing bitter leaves for the kings to chew, one passing him arrows. There was also a Brahmin. The elephant, frightened by the fire on its back, plunged into the shallow lake beside the Indus and mounted Arab archers killed King Dahar while he was still in the litter. Like a warrior, Dahar had gone into battle prepared for death and the funeral pyre. His body, when it was found, smelled of musk and attar of roses. The women servants who were captured, they later identified the king's severed head for Ben Qasim. The sister Dahar had nominally married for the sake of his kingship, burned herself to death with other women of her household. Dahar's real wife was brought by Ben Qasim with part of the loot of Sindh, and Dahar's Two daughters were sent in the charge of Abyssinian slaves to the caliph. They were admitted into the caliph's harem. He allowed them to rest for a few days. Then he asked them to be brought to him at night. He wanted to know who was the elder. He wished to take her first. He found out through an interpreter. The elder was Surijidu. When the caliph tried to embrace her, she jumped up and said, May the king live long. I, a humble slave, am not fit for your majesty's bedroom because the just Amir Imaduddin Muhammad bin Qasim kept us both with him for three days and then sent us to the caliph. 
Perhaps your custom is such, or else this disgrace should not be permitted by kings. The caliph bit his hand. He immediately ordered a letter to be sent to Bin Qasim, ordering him to put himself in raw leather and come back to the chief seat of the caliph. Bin Qasim, Bin Qasim was on the Indian border. He obeyed. He asked his men to put him in a fresh hide, to put the hide in a box, and to send the box to the caliph. He died within two days. The body, when it came to Baghdad, was displayed by the caliph to the daughters of King Dahar. Look, he said, how our orders are promptly obeyed by our officers. And then Surijidu said she had lied to be revenged on Ben Qasim. She and her sister were both virgins. They had not been touched by Ben Qasim. The caliph immediately ordered the two sisters to be buried alive in a wall. From that time up to our own days, the banner of Islam has been rising higher and higher and gaining greater and greater glory day by day. The Chachnama says, With that apparent inconsequentiality, the narrative ends. The recall of Ben Qasim speaks of some political change in Iraq and Syria at the time. But the Arabian Nights' fabrication and the degeneracy it implies is a reminder that 500 years separate the Chachnama from the conquest of Sindh. The Mongol storm is about to break over Minaret and Seraglio. The Arab conquest of Sindh is distinct from the Muslim invasions of India proper, which began about three centuries later. But the Sindh conquered by Bin Qasim was a big country, roughly the area of present-day southern Pakistan and southern Afghanistan. And Chachnama might be said to be an account of the Islamic beginnings of the state. But it is a bloody story. And the parts that get into the school books are the fairy tales. An Arab ship was taking gifts to the caliph, the ship was seized by King Dahar, and Muslims were made captives. The women among them called out, Hajjaj, save us, save us, to rescue them. Hajjaj invades Sindh. Little things have to be changed even in the fairy tales. The flags on the temple of Debal, the talisman knocked down by catapult, were green Green is the Islamic color, so in at least one textbook, the flags are made red for the children. In little things, as in big, the faith has to be served. <laughs>